You're listening to a Rock Candy podcast. Hey guys, my name is Matt Langston. I am a music producer, a mix engineer, and an avid unicorn enthusiast. And I would like to invite you over to my podcast, Eleven D Life. On Eleven D Life, we get to talk to your favorite artists, producers, and creators about what makes them tick. We take deep dives into where they get their juiciest inspirations from and how they keep from being cynical about all of it. We even get to pull back the curtain on my band, Eleven D Seven, and share some fun insider tips and tricks for our fellow. Bandmates and creators out there. So be sure to check out Eleven D Life right here on the Rock Candy Podcast Network and wherever you get your favorite shows. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and we are here on the Rock Candy Podcast Network. For more shows like this one, go to rockcandyrecordings.com. All right, first things first. This show is only possible with the support of my patrons. I have taken a considerable financial cut, as has everyone else right now in this fucking plague. That is destroying the economy, so I have taken a considerable cut. I am no longer teaching yoga, and I have reduced my hours as an essential worker to reduce my exposure to the public. So that means that I am relying on my patrons now more than ever. Uh, But with that said, I also need you to understand that I need you to take care of yourself first and foremost, and take care of your family and those you love. And uh, so if you do not have the financial margin to give right now, don't worry. I completely understand. If you do, after first and foremost, taking care of your own needs, if you do have a little bit left over um, and you love this show, then do please consider becoming a patron by going to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. For a dollar a month or five dollars a month, you get extra content every week. My House of Heretics podcast and the occasional meditation on a tarot card or a blog post. So if that interests you, then do please become a patron. I need your help massively. So this week, I have to thank Nicole, Adam, Bill, Jenny, Richard, Jay, Helena, William, and Lucy Vor. Thank you so much. You are my personal lords and saviors. I couldn't do this without you. And for those of you who are unable to give, there are other ways to support this show. Uh, One of the best ways is to just subscribe. If you aren't subscribed already, go ahead and subscribe. That tells our digital overlords that this show is worth recommending to others. It really helps this show reach more people. Also, go ahead and leave a five-star review. Uh, That really helps a lot, especially on Apple Podcasts. And another way to support this show is to go to thesatanictemple.tv. They are a sponsor of this show, and you can use my promo code at checkout, sacredtension, all caps, no space, 
to get one month free. They have all kinds of interesting content. They have lectures, they have live streams, they have interviews, they have documentaries. They also have some kinky stuff on there as well, if you're into that. And uh, so they have all kinds of interesting content. If you are uh, interested in Satan or Satan adjacent or new religious movements and uh, kind of some transgressive media, we have a lot of it on the satanictemple.tv. So definitely go check that out. All right. Well, with all of that out of the way, I am delighted to welcome Eric Sprankle to the show. Eric, hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So you have, most of what I know about you is that you have a badass Twitter feed. <laughs> uh, so, um, but you are a, tell us who you are. Tell us who you are and what you do. Sure. Well, outside of Twitter, um, I am an associate professor of clinical psychology at Minnesota State University in Mankato. I'm also the, the co-director of the sexuality studies program there. So I teach a lot of sexual health classes to undergrads and grad students, um, able to conduct all my research kind of focused on sexuality or what it has been over the past year. The only time that I did deviate from uh, just focusing on, on sexuality within my research was last year and my Satanism and stigma studies. Um, and that's one thing that I feel very fortunate to be able to do at an institution like Minnesota State um, is that my research agenda is largely up to me. Um, we're not expected, I mean, the university would like, but we're not expected to uh, attract like million dollar NIH grants to fund research. Um, I'm not going to be able to get a million dollar grant to, to study Satanists and their, and their sexuality and experiences of stigma. So maybe someday though, maybe someday, maybe someday we'll get yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I'm laying some groundwork that that'll show a need for this uh, to be grant funded. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm able to conduct the, the kind of research that I want to. And then the past uh, year, year and a half, I've been focused on Satanists and Satanism. That's awesome. Now, are you yourself a Satanist? I would say the best label for me would be de facto Satanists. Okay. LeVay mentioned that at some point. Essentially, um, those who act as if they are a Satanist, but they may not have that label affixed to themselves, like self-identified. Sure. Um, like on paper, everything like lines up like, oh, yeah, obviously this person is a Satanist. <laughs> that, that term itself, and this is interesting because this is actually part of my research of looking at self-identified Satanists. And I've often wondered, would I even take my own survey if somebody was recruiting for a study that just was looking for self-identified Satanists? And mm. I'm kind of on the fence with that. I'm certainly a Satanic atheist, but uh, the label Satanist, I don't know if it's just because the concept of religion, even a non-theistic religion, just doesn't have much of a function in my life. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I have no problem with being labeled by others as a Satanist. I absolutely don't take that as any type of offense. I view that sure. as a badge of honor, usually when it is bestowed upon me like that. Um, but I think de facto Satanist would be the, the, the closest in terms of self-identifying. Awesome. Yeah. And, and I've seen you interacting a lot with people in the satanic community. Mm -hmm. um, I know Greg Stevens did an interview with you for his Patreon. Yeah, yeah and um, I have really, really enjoyed a lot of the stuff you're doing, both in Satanism and in uh, sexuality and sexual health, and both of those, I think, are really important. But I just have to ask, in, in regards to the sexual component, do you ever get, like, really 
awkward conversations from strangers like hey i have a problem you know i i feel really guilty about shoving hamsters into my butthole (laughs) all the time Mm -hmm. you know this is a fetish i have how do i deal with this like do you get those conversations yeah all all the time okay i mean how do you how do you deal with that (laughs) (laughs) i avoid the public as much as possible even pre-pandemic um so those kinds (laughs) of like real life experiences are limited to like if I attend a wedding or something I usually give this as an example because this is a common occurrence at like a wedding reception I'm at at a table where I I don't know too many people especially if I I just know who's getting married Um, and then you know the obvious first question usually is um, you know what do you do and I, I decide in that moment of like how much I want to disclose specifics about my job if I don't feel like getting into anything I'll just say professor and leave it at that but occasionally I do say that I'm a professor of clinical psych and sexual health and then one of two things happen either that shuts down the conversation pretty quickly (laughs) which is good that's fine if they're uncomfortable with that we don't have to talk further um, and pretend to be friends Um, but the other side of that is it definitely piques their interest and then it's like we're best friends or i'm their personal counselor and then they start disclosing personal things that's like we just met like 30 seconds ago (laughs) i don't don't think this is really appropriate and i i try as much as i can to like empathize with that because clearly if they're that eager to talk about their deepest sexual desires or their sexual questions or what their spouse may or may not be doing um obviously they don't have too many outlets where they can talk about that so i I try to like empathize with oh clearly this person needs to talk (laughs) about these things with somebody um but more recently yeah i I get that a lot on social media of people just dming me and most times I, i don't even look at my dms um but occasionally i do scroll through that and it will just be like hey, is this normal? Or is this like just a, a, a simple uh, one sentence of like, am I masturbating too much? And then other times people write like a thesis on the whole <laughs> sexual history and want to know if they're okay. And I'm like, oh, I don't know if this is like, when, what world is this like appropriate to like to seek out the, a, a stranger and like start therapy? <laughs> what, so it feels like therapy. It's like the clinical psych equivalent of unsolicited dick pics. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. That, that's okay. A good analogy. My DMs. <laughs> Either it's like hate messages in my DMs or uns- the the equivalent of the unsolicited dick pic, which is t- tell me I'm okay. So so what? So so does it all come down to tell me I'm okay? Like tell me I'm not some kind of freak? Is that generally what it comes down to? It seems to be that okay. way. Yeah, that people just have understandably a lot of like sexual ignorance and sexual anxiety mm. about their desires. Um, and they're just looking for some type of validation. Yeah. So let's talk about that. The sexual ignorance thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you you have on your website a section called uncrucifying sex. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Well, for me, this was um, started as a writing project. I didn't know if it was going to be a blog. I'm turning it more into a book proposal now. And so I think I just have like two posts up there, which are like more introductory kind of stuff. And I stopped because I'm focusing more on uh, how to structure it in book format. Um, But for me, this is recognizing that for those who grew up in Christian households, which typically my target audience has, Um, whether they're current atheists or Satanists or some kind of uh, pagan, um, that they grew up in a Christian household. And even if they didn't, we live in a a Christian culture, Um, despite 
you know, promises of ch- separation of church and state that doesn't exist. And we're inundated by Christian sexual values. And they, Christianity, has dictated what is and isn't okay when it comes to sex. And it's completely arbitrary, it's archaic, and it's very oppressive. And so the whole purpose of uncrucifying sex is recognizing that Christian sexual values aren't universal sexual values. And so we can create our own if we don't adhere to Christianity's rigid morality and value system, that we can create our own value system. And specifically, I look at secular sexual values, which primarily focus around consent, sexual knowledge, and bodily autonomy. Mm. How does the so so how do the negative and toxic aspects of Christian sexuality manifest themselves just as as someone who sees this on a regular basis and and works with people who are working through this what are the most common ways that toxic Christian sexuality manifests itself Well the big 3 emotions would be sexual guilt shame and embarrassment uh, so that's mm. the feeling and then whether that's about a person's identity or about their sexual expression then then that can manifest in various different ways in terms of impeding sexual functioning and sexual satisfaction and pleasure, maybe um, engaging and structuring relationships in a way that does not fit with one's uh, like true identity or ideal sexual expression. So let's say com- compulsory monogamy, all right, Christian sexual value, one man, one woman, uh, monogamous, married for life. Well, that's great for a lot of people, but it doesn't fit for everybody. And so if you feel that you have to fit into that mold in order to be accepted, in order to be healthy or happy and satisfied, well, you're not going to be because that structure, that compulsory monogamy is just an arbitrary structure. It's not, it's neither good nor bad. It's just one structure that exists that can fit for a lot of people. But if we try to force ourselves into that system in which it's incongruent with actually our identities, our values, or our expressions, then we're just going to set ourselves up for a life of dissatisfaction, displeasure, and a lot of kind of stigma management around recognizing that this isn't right for us, but I can't really talk about it because I don't want to be shamed by family, by friends, by my community, because I want to do something a little bit different, but that's going to be frowned upon. So you mentioned the three main emotions. Say those one more time. Uh, guilt, shame, and embarrassment. So in this context, what's the difference between shame and guilt when it comes to, to sexuality? Yeah, the big thing is like feeling guilt is more behavioral and that... Um, let's say like masturbation guilt, someone just masturbated and that difference of experience and emotions and perceptions and attitudes, pre-orgasm versus post-orgasm, pre-orgasm, you're justifying it. Yes, I want to do this post-orgasm, starting can feel some guilt or regret. So that's just feeling guilty about what you did because it doesn't align with what you wanted to do, uh, largely because it's incongruent with some value system that you're trying to adhere to. Whereas shame is more an internalized, uh, more uh, kind of global experience internally of saying, I'm a bad person because I masturbate. So not that it's, it's a little bit um, uh, more in depth than just guilt that said, oh, I did a bad thing. Shame is I'm a bad person. So basically what I'm OK, so so guilt is I did a bad thing. Whereas shame is I am a bad person because I 
did this thing or I am this thing. I am exactly. gay or I am trans or I am non-monogamous or what have you. So, right. so I can imagine that this is an epidemic, you know, people, people struggling because we do live with a lot of sexual shame just culturally. And I feel like a lot of people are, are processing this. What in your experience are the steps that it takes to, to be free from that shame and guilt? Yeah, so three things I generally look for as to, to help individuals kind of get to a point of uncrucifying sex to kind of get past this Christian indoctrination of what is right and wrong relating to sexuality. Um, two things that people can do on their own would just be exposed, trying to find sex positive, secular, at least non-sex negative Christian resources online um, or books um, that that profess sex positivity in a way that they haven't heard before. And so that's what I try to do with my social media. It's just like provide the counter arguments to what we're bombarded with every day of validating sexual identities and expressions. Here's new ways to think about it. You do you, it's your body, do as you please, that kind of stuff. Um, so just exposing yourself to, to different educational resources and messages that do align with your value system. Also, finding communities in which you do feel validated and affirmed and supported, whether online or in real life. Um, so you just don't feel alone because you're not alone. The, the most atypical and unconventional things that I've heard that, are, that people are into, there's a whole subgenre of pornography that caters just to that very unique interest. So there's, you're certainly not alone a, a, as much as it may feel like you are at some times. So finding like-minded individuals, those who share your values, your identities, your, your expressions and interests can be super valuable in getting that support and validation and affirmation that you need. And then beyond that, because that's just kind of self-help kind of stuff, um, a lot of this is so deeply ingrained and almost like on a cellular level um, that therapy or some type of counseling is warranted uh, to, to really explore the negative emotions that have um, been the result of being bombarded with um, pretty oppressive Christian sexual values for their entire life. Mm. So you just mentioned pornography, and I, I feel like on the Internet, and maybe this is less the case now, there's kind of this raging debate in a secular way, if I'm reading it correctly, over the the positives and negatives of pornography. So there's, for example, there's there's a lot of concern about the um, there's a lot of concern about pornography impairing sexual function. And I'm right. not sure if I under fully understand that argument. So there, there is there is still a lot of angst about mm -hmm. pornography, even in secular settings. And so, and then you have groups like NoFap, and and you have these these settings where where guys especially are committing themselves to not watching pornography, to to uh, not masturbating. And because they feel like it is impairing their function in some way, either sexually or more broadly. So what what's your take on that? The pros and cons of of pornography? 
Yeah, so I think it's very easy to scapegoat porn for all of society, society's ills. And that's been the case since, since like the 60s and 70s or even before, um, where we viewed any kind of social problem and tried to point our finger at some type of easy scapegoat. And a lot of times it is media, um, whether it's, you know, heavy metal, metal like, you know, Black Sabbath and Judas Priest um, in the 70s and 80s being responsible for turning kids into the occult or getting them into the occult or being responsible for suicide. Obviously, Marilyn Manson in the late 90s, early 2000s with school shootings. Um, and now, uh, too, with, with pornography of pointing our finger at that as to that's why um, people are having erectile difficulties. That's why people aren't able to have uh, in real life relationships, intimate relationships with others. That, that porn is impairing uh, our abilities to do this, that we're becoming addicted to it and that we're just being accustomed to what we see in pixels and it doesn't generalize into the real world. And so we need to distance ourselves or outright just ban porn. That's 99% ideological. Um, the, the research going back to the 70s um, on pornography and up to today, the, the current porn researchers, it is such a complex and convoluted um, body of literature and the academic literature of porn effects. And it's marked by so many different methodological problems, primarily focusing on that this belief that all porn is the same and it's gonna impact all viewers in the same way. And so early research, and unfortunately it still happens a little bit today too that I see in a study that looks at porn effects is that they're not even defining the type of porn that is under investigation. Um, so more modern research that is sensitive to that is very much um, aware that there is a lot of diversity in the type of porn content. There's a lot of diversity among uh, porn users. So we can't make these broad generalizations of all porn is bad or all porn is good for everybody that views it. Some studies have shown negative effects. Some st studies have shown positive effects. And a lot of studies have, haven't shown like any effect uh, mm. on the individual. It just doesn't uh, change their attitudes or behaviors in any way. So more from a clinical perspective, I think is, is where the, the conversations about porn use and its effects should take place because that's gonna be on the individual level. So how is porn in, impacting this one person? Are, and it's not necessarily like porn is bad or porn is good, it's the person's relationship with that. How are they interpreting what they are seeing? Um, how is it impacting their life? Um, and just because it is impacting their life doesn't necessarily mean that porn is necessarily in and of itself the culprit. Someone can say that I'm out of control with my porn use just because they watch porn once a month. And to them, that feels like it's out of control because they didn't want to do it. And that's where I really like Josh Grubbs' research. He's a professor at Bowling Green State University. He's really focused on this idea of porn addiction or sex addiction as a mechanism of moral incongruence in that those who identify as porn or sex addicts, they do so because their porn or sexual behavior is incongruent with their values, primarily Christian sexual values. And so if you have a value system that says you should not be looking at porn, but you do anyways, you're going to feel distress over that. And you may even label yourself as an addict. Whereas somebody who watches porn and masturbates living daily, but that's not 
incongruent with their sexual values. Therefore, there's no distress. Therefore, there's no impact in their life. They're not going to label themselves as an addict, and nor would they be assessed as one by a clinician. That's really fascinating. So basically what I'm hearing you say is that whether someone self-diagnoses as an addict or self-identifies as an addict is kind of entirely dependent on their moral worldview. And so Mm -hmm. say a Christian, you know, a, a conservative Christian will say, I have an addiction to porn and he watches it or they watch it or she watches it once a week. Or once a month, <laughs> and then mm-hmm. so and so, it's entirely about our own moral, moral outlook on life, and and incongruence between those things. Right. Um. That's when I used to do clinical work full time. About it's been a decade now. Um, we would see that a lot. I worked at um, the Center for Sexual Health at the University of Minnesota Medical School. And we would have a lot of um, patients coming in, self-identifying as a sex addict, or they're calling their partner a sex addict. So treat me, I need help, or treat my partner, they're a sex addict. Um, And so they were already coming into therapy with their own diagnosis, so to speak. You know, sex addiction isn't an actual diagnosis. Um, But they were coming in with this idea that they have a problem and this is what it's called. And now after assessing them, it realize, it, you know, you uncover that they don't necessarily have an addiction. It's not even a compulsivity. It's just that they were using porn secretly and they got caught. And now there's those emotions that are coming up, the guilt, the shame, embarrassment. And then when you factor in other emotions that can exist within relationships of like insecurities and um, boundary violations and violations of trust, then, yeah, you have a lot to treat there but you're treating the violations of trust and the boundary violations. You're treating the guilt and the shame and the embarrassment. It's less about the porn. It's more about the secrecy that porn existed in, in that relationship. And so fast forward to more recent research with like Josh Grubbs, as I mentioned, he's just providing some academic language and some theories as to what we were actually seeing clinically like a decade ago. And it is about this moral incongruence between behaviors and values. So, uh, the the topic of sex addiction. So, for example, there are support groups like there's a 12 step group called Sex Addicts Anonymous, I think. And there's and so there's kind of this cultural acceptance and awareness of a sex addict. Right. Does that even does do does sex addiction exist? Is it even so? So what is it? Is it real? Does it even exist? Or are they just people with high sex drives? Right. So. With this debate, I always like to start so it it doesn't seem like I'm coming down on one side or the other, as if we ask the question more broadly of can sex, sexual behavior, become problematic for an individual? I think we all can agree that it can. Mm, Now the debate really gets into, well, what is causing it to be a problem? What do we call it when it becomes a problem? And then how do we treat it? Mm. Um, Dr. Nicole Prowse She's a neuroscientist uh, who does a lot of porn studies uh, research, just released um, a blog post on Medium just uh, yesterday or the day before on this topic and why it's so important that language matters in the clinical world. Because if we call something a sex addiction, we're automatically uh, viewing the behavior within an addiction model. And so that's going to guide treatment. And treatment for addictions would be focused on um, abstinence 
and these 12 step programs, right? There's harm reduction stuff with that. And I, I certainly support all harm reduction. I mean, for substance related addictions or substance related um, use disorders. Um, but that's largely the, the sex addict kind of model that sex is the problem. You need to learn how to re like rein that in or even abstain from it. Whereas if we view it as a compulsion or a symptom of an anxiety disorder or a symptom of ADHD, then we're not treating the sex per se, we're treating the underlying thing that's driving the behavior. And so we're treating anxiety disorders, we're treating uh, uh, impulsive, uh, impulse control disorders or compulsive disorders. If we're viewing it as just moral incongruence and we're labeling it as like sexual behavior incongruence or you know that's not a diagnosis, but whatever we wanna call it, then that would guide the behavior or, or the treatment rather, to focus more on how can we make behaviors and values more congruent? So let's explore your values. Are your values actually aligned with your ideal and authentic self? Sometimes it is, but a lot of times it's just the value system that's placed on us and we haven't thought critically about it. So we need to recalibrate our, our values since we are violating our values, so to speak. Maybe that should tell us something that our value system really isn't part of our authentic self anymore. And then that becomes more of like a subclinical kind of treatment because there's no diagnosis actually. And especially if it's a relational issue where one partner doesn't like porn, the other does, then that's just couples counseling. It's, it's not diagnostic. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And so it really has to be taken at like a person by person basis. I think so. I, I think, you know, we, we do the best we can with research in this area. But for me, the, uh, the applied aspect of the research, the implications always has to go down to the individual level, because we can't make these, these sweeping generalizations of this is what sex addiction is. This is how it impacts everybody who may be uh, labeled as that. It really comes down to this manifests in so many different ways that I've seen clinically that we need to look at it on an individual level to see what's the mechanism behind why they may be struggling with their sexuality or their sexual behavior, and then go from there. Hmm. So this might be kind of beyond the scope of, of your research and expertise, but I'm really fascinated by conspiracy theories and how they often play on fears of sexual abuse, especially against children. And, and I'm just curious what your take is on that. You know, as someone who studies sex and sexuality, you know, I think of QAnon and, and Frazzle Drip and um, uh, Pizzagate and like the fear of the, the sexual terror, uh, you know, the kind of this, 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 this painting of sexual monsters as the ultimate degeneracy. And that often includes pedophilia and cannibalism. And I don't know. What's your take on that? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I get, I get sucked into these kind of conspiracy theories um, because I, I can easily be a poster child for them. I mean, with the satanic imagery and that I'm a <laughs> Same. Yes. Yeah, so it's, it's uh, occasionally I'll, I'll see the QAnon people kind of put their crosshairs in my direction. Um, they're trying to put little pieces together like, dude, it's, it's like all in my bio of like, I'm not hiding anything. Yes. I'm a sex educator. I've obviously Satanas in, in my bio, like there's no secret society going on. There's, they're me. starting to, uh, they're starting to write articles about me now. And oh, congratulations. yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah. And 
thank you so much. I, 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 it's an honor, I guess. Right. And it's so hilarious. And, and you know, I, I released an article and a podcast about the satanic abortion ritual that TST just mm-hmm. did. And, and the response has just been so hilarious. Like, they're finally admitting that they sacrifice <laughs> children. <laughs> they're right. actually admitting it now. Oh, anyway, right. go on. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's the funny thing, like, right, because I saw some criticism of TST's abortion ritual of like, oh, this is just going to fuel the satanic panic. I'm like, people who are that opposed to abortion think it's a satanic right anyways. And they think Satanists, yes. i.e. just non-Christians or Christians who aren't their type of Christians, are engaging in cannibalism and child sacrifice and satanic worship. So there's there's nothing that we can do on the atheist and Satanist side that's going to um, you know, change the minds of those kind of radicals uh, on the right. So we might as well do what we need to do that's that's best and, and most authentic for us because they're going to freak out regardless. But kind of back to this, uh, the, the paranoia of um, child sex abuse, you know, and like tying into like child sex trafficking too, is that obviously child uh, sexual abuse exists and, um, but how they are viewing it in terms of how abuse occurs is so off point. And same thing with the trafficking, thinking that just your run-of-the-mill suburban family going to Whole Foods and traffickers are snatching up your children when they distract you by like putting a zip tie on um, a side mirror of your car. You're distracted by that. They steal your children and sell them into a child sex ring. Like that right. doesn't happen. Right. What happens is like, what are the actual risk factors of child sexual exploitation? Um, and at least with the, the, within the trafficking discourse, it's poverty. Poverty is going to be a huge predictor of exploitation of children and adults uh, as well. And we all know, too, that who's going to be the most likely person to perpetrate uh, child sexual abuse against a child? It would be someone within their family or at least someone that they know pretty well. And there's some trust there. Right. It's not this stranger other. Right. So we're still falling into these traps of like stranger danger, the scary guy in the alley, the scary guy in the van. Right. Who are going around abducting children. There are those like psychopaths or sadists, um, whatever you want to call them, that are out there. But they are such, such a minority that the focus should be on actually the root causes of child sex abuse and what's happening within the homes. So that's always so interesting to me when you have like a QAnon supporter who's so um, invested in trying to put all these pieces together, this deep state, um, you know, conspiracy of child sex abuse, be like, why don't you do that at your next family gathering, your next family reunion during the holidays? Because more likely there's a, you know, a sexual offender within that group, as opposed to trying to find some Soros funded uh, kind of pedophile that's existing out there in the elite uh, deep state. And so that's just Mm, kind of what uh, irks me so much is that it's a diversion, much like kind of focusing so much on negative porn effects. It's like, let's look at what's actually going on here. And so with the child sex abuse uh, conspiracies within QAnon, focus on child sex abuse where it actually happens. It's happening in your home. It's not happening in some like deep state cover up. Yeah. So is there some kind of. I don't mean to over psychoanalyze, but but kind of a level of projection, like I definitely feel like the satanic panic of the 80s and 90s 
was kind of a projection, you know, like put let's let's project the evil out there Mm -hmm. in a way that we don't have to look at the evil in our own homes. And I know that I'm using evil in kind of an essentializing way, the abuse, the abuse that is happening in our own homes, in our own communities, in our own churches, in the Catholic Church, in our own parishes, in our own congregations. Um, is there an element, do you feel, of that here? Like, it, it's always so much more comfortable to to pr- to confront an imaginary evil rather than confront real-life abuse, which happens among people we know and trust, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if it's not project, uh, projection, it's certainly denialism. Mm, yeah. That you're in denial that this can occur within your own house, that this occurs, uh, that the perpetrators are people that you know, that you trust, and would never think. You know, the, the cliche interview after a serial killer gets arrested and they interview the neighbor, like, I had no idea. They were just so quiet, right? So just, you know, we can't necessarily pick up all signs of abusive behavior in others, but we have to at least acknowledge that that possibility exists. And that possibility is much more probable than this conspiracy theory of you trying to connect all these dots that don't necessarily connect in some kind of deep state cobble. Yeah. And so I, I think it is just the challenge of one, being uncomfortable with sexuality to have these conversations openly and honestly, that it has to be part of like this grand, like satanic scheme for us to even like begin to start talking about sexuality, as opposed to sit down with, um, you know, your brother, uh, if you have children and your brother, who's, you know, your children's uncle is being inappropriate around your children to the point where you have to start like policing your children's behavior or what they're wearing because uncle Steve's coming over, right? Well, let's have a conversation with uncle Steve. He's the problem, not what your children are doing or what they're wearing. Mm -hmm. And so we need to confront our own relatives when we're seeing problematic and inappropriate behaviors, even if it's just comments, that this is unacceptable, that we have to recognize that this exists within our families and Mm -hmm. we need to be able to talk about it. We need to be able to confront it. And we just largely lack the skills to be able to do that because I'm I'm not denying that that isn't difficult, but I think it's much easier to think that the only type of child abuse that exists in the world is from these elaborate of conspiracies and it's so much scarier and so much harder and and if i you know i think it feels out of control for people Mm -hmm. and so i sometimes wonder if if these conspiracy theories are really an attempt to regain a sense of control over over a perceived threat you know yeah i could see that i could also see that um kind of in the in a worldview of like a just world a fair world that in order for injustices to occur, there has to be something very grand in scale Mm. to allow that to have happened, Mm. right? So I view this too with like 9-11 conspiracies, right? That it was all planned out by our government, that there were bombs in the buildings to bring down those, um, you know, the World Trade Center, things like that. And I think that's easy to get into kind of that type of thinking because the alternative is we have this massive attack right, in the United States, one that we haven't seen before to this scale. And it was carried out just by 19 random people with box cutters. Like there has to be something bigger here to make sense out of this amount of destruction. It can't be that simple 
of an explanation. So similarly, looking at child sex abuse, it can't be as simple as just a relative doing this. This is such a horrific um, behavior and a horrific crime that it has its its roots have to be like spread out throughout the the elite cobble who's controlling all of this. That's the only way to kind of make sense out of it to just not justify it, but understand how quote unquote evil exists. That it has to be from this evil operation and mm. not just simply that one person doesn't know how to behave appropriately. Mm. That's really interesting. Um, so I'd like to pivot to your work on Satanism. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so what was the research that you were conducting on, on Satanists? Yeah, so last year we did um, a, a study that looked at self-identified Satanist experiences with stigma, and stigma management, and their mental health. And not necessarily a follow-up study, but a, a separate study from that that's still ongoing for a couple more weeks now um, is looking at Satanism and sexuality and kind of looking at moral incongruence or congruence that we were talking about earlier of what are satanic sexual values or at least values among specific or individual satanists and how does that line up with their actual sexual attitudes and behaviors expecting much more moral congruence within satanists than what we see um, among christians um, so those that, that first study on Satanism and stigma, um, I made those two uh, kind of brief overview lecture videos for TST TV, uh, just kind of showing that like the data that we have on atheists, that Satanists do experience uh, stigma and discrimination. They worry about um, being treated differently because of their identity as a, as a Satanist. And what kind of impact does that have on Um, their mental health. Primarily, we're focusing on measuring depression and depressive symptoms and more of an applied kind of therapeutic way of, is it important for a Satanist who is seeking therapy for whatever reason, um, that the therapist also be a Satanist, that they've had experience working with other Satanist patients, or they're at least have some cultural humility when working with Satanists and not making assumptions. What were your findings with that? With the stigma studies, uh, we were finding, similar to uh, the atheist research, that um, the more a person identifies as a Satanist, the more um, stigma management that they essentially have to engage in, that they are worried about how others are going to be treating them. Um, We did find that being low in kind of satanic camaraderie. So we measured strength of um, Satanist identity in three ways. One, we just looked at like how central is being a Satanist into your overall sense of self. We looked at um, kind of in-group relations of like how much do you feel like other Satanists are kind of quote, unquote, your people. Uh, So feeling kind of that camaraderie. And then we also looked at in-group affect, meaning how comfortable are you with the fact that you are a Satanist? And so what we found, not surprisingly, when you think about it, but in the, within the body of literature, within counseling, this is a pretty interesting finding, that those who have strong in-group ties, so they feel like they've found kind of like, quote, their people within Satanism, because they themselves are a Satanist, um, that predicts lower depressive symptoms than those who feel uh, mm. less close or less connected. 
And why that's such an interesting finding. I mean, obviously that makes, that makes sense. Like that makes intuitive sense. So you have this community uh, that could be a protective factor against um, depressive symptoms. But when we look at how therapists could potentially treat Satanists as, as patients in a negative way, in a bias way, that if a therapist uh, learns that their patient is a Satanist and also is presenting with depression and therapy, their bias may say like, oh, well, you're depressed because you're involved in Satanism um, or your Satanism um, is causing you to be depressed or your depression is causing you to be a Satanist, something like that. And so the treatment goal would then don't be a Satanist anymore. You need to like disaffiliate because hmm. this is unhealthy for you. Our research shows just quite the opposite, that if you have a Satanist patient who's depressed, I would want to explore, well, what's your connections with other Satanists? Kind of like what I was saying earlier about combating sex negativity in our culture of finding like-minded individuals, finding your community um, to, to, to meet those social needs, to get support, support and validation and affirmation. And so this approach would have therapists then recognizing that Satanism and involvement within a Satanic community could actually help their depressive symptoms to alleviate them as opposed to like, no, you need to get rid of this because this is inherently unhealthy for you. That's fascinating because what I hear in that is, what I hear implicit in that is the depth to which Satanism can be part of someone's identity in a way that I feel like maybe a lot of people and therapists wouldn't appreciate because it's like, oh, this is this is just an arbitrary thing that you chose. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's kind of tied up in the why Satan question. Mm -hmm. Well, why did you right. choose Satan as if it were a as if it were an arbitrary choice, as if it didn't come with this whole personal history of of resonating with that almost like it was chosen for you mm -hmm. is what it feels like. For yeah. me, at least. And, and, and so I don't know. It's, it's interesting to hear that because, it, because it, for me, that confirms, no, this isn't arbitrary. This is something mm -hmm. very deep for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. It's not arbitrary. It's certainly not trivial. Um, you know, I was intentional as a researcher not to be kind of a satanic gatekeeper uh, of who's like a true Satanist that can take my study or survey and who can't. I just pointed uh, or just made the criteria simple of do you identify as a Satanist and are you 18 or over and then you can take it. Um, so more than likely, given the diversity within Satanist identities, um, we haven't looked closely at this at this part of the data yet, but more than likely there's going to be individuals in there who are low on uh, strength of Satanist identity. So it's not as central to their, their core sense of self. It may just be reactionary um, in, in that they use it just kind of for like shock value, or if it's more of just kind of an aesthetic, more for observing eyes as opposed to their authentic self. Um, I'm sure the, those individuals exist, but uh, I'm guessing the, the vast majority of our sample that Satanism is more of a, a core component of who they are. And it's not just a, a showy, superficial kind of component. Like it exists even if, and for, for a lot of our participants, it, it exists even if they're not telling anybody that they are a Satanist. Yeah, they're Satanists even if they are alone in their basement with their cat. 
Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's that's really interesting because, you know, I feel like I... People, people are always like, so why didn't you just become a Buddhist? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> why didn't you just become a Unitarian Universalist or, mm-hmm. or you know, and I, and there's a certain, and what I tell them is you're going about this way more logically than I am. Like <laughs> you're, you're going about, you know, it's like if I wanted to, to very like deliberately choose my religious identity to, to have the broadest appeal I would be the I would be a milk toast Episcopalian, mm-hmm. you know. And it it doesn't and, and so it it's like this isn't something that I I rationally chose. Right. <laughs> it's a love affair, you know. G.K. Mm-hmm. Chesterton talks about he uh, G.K. Chesterton says, "Let your religion be less of a theory and more of a love affair," mm-hmm. and uh, and I feel like my religion is all love affair, and so I'm I'm in this this awkward position of just constantly trying to articulate the way it's like no this wasn't a a a con or, or it this wasn't a a rational choice <laughs> on my right. part it was something that just fell into my life it is is like yes this is me this is this is who i this is who i am this is who i've always been mm-hmm. and then having to explain to people no this isn't arbitrary and um and i feel like what i'm hearing in your research is that it kind of confirms that in a way it does and and research prior to mine too uh confirms that as well that most satanists did grow up in christian households and they weren't um like proselytized or recruited into satanism they found it they discovered it and it fit Yes. So it's the, the goodness of, of fit, of just stumbling upon it, whether you, you, know, you read the Satanic Bible and, and, in high school or saw something online now with TST, that would be like, oh, this is me, right? Exactly. And then the, the conscious part of that is how much do I want to like lean into this and kind of have this as part of my identity versus not. And even if you don't, that it's, it's still who you are and kind of that kind of making a full circle here to my mm. introduction of like a de facto Satanist, like on paper, seeing either like church of Satan or, or TST or independent uh, Satanist groups, like, yeah, that, that fits me. Me living authentically is living satanically, so to mm. speak. I don't try to do that. Uh, I don't wake up in the morning. How can I be a, a good Satanist today? It's just me. How can I be authentic? And that's just labeled as being satanic. Um, so the conscious decision for me in this case would be how, how important is that label for my core sense of self? It doesn't change my behavior. It doesn't change my attitudes, perceptions, um, anything like that. It's just an identity at that point. And how important is that identity? me that's really interesting and it and it makes me think of my history in christianity because i i feel like you know i so i'm a preacher's kid both of my parents are preachers actually um and then you know i and i've kind of made a rule that i don't talk about my family on the internet because they didn't sign up to be talked about so i don't (laughs) so i you know i respect their boundaries but 
Um, and then I, I kind of grew up in the Christian world and I was very much part of the push for, uh, for accepting hom- homosexuality and trans people in the church, um, in the Anglican church and the Catholic church. You know, I, I was writing quite a bit about that. I was kind of an activist when it comes to that, but, but looking back, I realize, and maybe this is just a post hoc, you know, explanation for, for a lot of the discomfort I felt, there was there was always just this this struggle of feeling like Chris, Christianity was who I was, mm-hmm. you know. There there was always this struggle with is is Christ the symbol that aesthetically, philosophically, culturally represents who I am. Mm-hmm. And there was always kind of a little gap there. There was always kind of this disconnect and this this management of this personal management of fitting myself into that. Right. You know, and, and I know people who have been Christians forever and it is who they are. But but realizing looking back that I was just always struggling with Christianity being who I was. And then Satanism came along and I was like this is it <laughs> this <laughs> this is where i am this is who i've always been yeah so i'm totally relating to mm-hmm. i'm totally relating to everything that you're saying um one one final question that i'm interested in hearing kind of going back to the uh back, back to the study of sexuality what got you into that in the first place what made you interested in in studying human sexuality um I think the first the first thing that I can kind of point to as yes, this is this is like my career trajectory now was just an undergraduate class um, in human sexuality. It was uh, just an, I was a psych major. It was an elective, and this was at University of Cincinnati, and it was one of the, the most popular classes as you know, the sexual health classes tend to tend to be. So it was in like a large lecture hall of like 500 other students and kind of the, the arrogance kind of going into that class as however old I was like 19 or 20 at the time of, yeah, this will just going to be an easy a right. It's sex. How much is there to know? (laughs) We had those couple of lectures in high school. Um, So what more is there? And just realizing there that, there is a lot more there um, and everything that I was taught in high school or believed or tried to make sense out of on my own, just observing the sexual world was largely inaccurate or just an outright like myth or lie. And so recognizing and just kind of opening my eyes about uh, like the diversity of sexuality and everything that we think we know, but we don't. Um, I just looked at that professor of, and like, I need to, to have this job too. Now, originally, I was interested in doing it just clinically, not in academia, um, in which I did pursue for a little bit. And I am still a licensed um, psychologist and sex therapist. Uh, I just don't practice. Uh, so academia is a better fit for me. But uh, yeah, that was kind of the, the origin story of it um, about 20 years ago now, just taking an undergraduate sexuality class and realizing how much we don't know as a culture and how much I want that to change. Very cool. Yeah, that's awesome. And well, I think that we're coming to the end of our time, but this has been an awesome conversation and you're welcome back anytime. I appreciate that. Yeah, I've had fun.
Yeah. So for people who want to find your work, where can they do that? Um, for the public, I'm mainly on social media, Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Sprankle. Um, I do have a website, drsprankle.com that just really kind of sits there. It's more of a placeholder. Um, I kind of forget I have it. Um, so primarily, uh, social media. And then also one thing that I, I will mention just as another website plug that I'm involved in is the secular therapy project. Um, even if you are a Satanist, but have secular values and would want a secular therapist, I'm, I'm the director for that organization. It's a nonprofit. Um, they have an online directory at seculartherapy.org, uh, where you can find secular therapists in your area. That's fantastic. Awesome. All right. Well, that is it for this show. As always, the music is by the Jelly Rocks and Eleven D Seven. You can find them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. The artwork is by Ramakrishna Das, and this show is made possible by patrons. To join their number, go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long, and there will be a link in the show notes. This show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long, and is a production of Rock Candy. And as always, hail Satan, and thanks for listening. Every plan I've made has changed but you